You're listening to Dr. Tony Nader, the podcast, dedicated to exploring the full potential of human physiology and mind with focus on ancient and modern techniques of self-development. Spend some time with Dr. Nader, who is leading the way in the science of consciousness, and begin your journey to better understanding the relationship of mind and body, consciousness, and physiology right now. My guest today is Dr. Tony Nader. We'll be discussing his recent book, One Unbounded Ocean of Consciousness, in which he comprehensively examines what scientists call the hard problem of what is consciousness. Dr. Nader is bringing the science of consciousness to new audiences and expanding the understanding of the relationship between mind and body, consciousness, and physiology, and the furthest reaches of human potential. Now, here's the interview. Dr. Tony Nader, welcome to Shrinkwrap Radio. Thank you, David. Wonderful to be with you. Well, it's really great to have you. And, and uh, I feel like maybe I should address you as Dr. Dr. Tony Nader, <laughs> because you have uh, degrees, PhDs in both uh, medicine, well, an MD in medicine and in psychology. But I, can I call you Tony instead? Yes, yes, Tony is perfect. I think okay. if I can call you David, it's definitely, yeah, definitely. So I'm honored to have this opportunity to speak with you. Uh, you know, you've presented at such prestigious institutions as Harvard Business School, Stanford University, the British House of Commons, among <laughs> others, and your research has been published all over the place, and you've received awards for humanitarian work, and you've had other discussions with movers and shakers in a variety of scientific fields. So it's, I'm deeply honored to have this opportunity to speak with you. And as if all of that were not enough, I'm under the impression that you're also the head honcho, the CEO of Transcendental Meditation International. Is that right? That's wonderful. It's great to be. It's a great opportunity to be with you, David. You discuss such profound topics and with such vision that it's nice to be on your platform and to think with you about yeah. things that make life better for everyone. Yes, yes. So in fact, we're going to be discussing your book, One Unbounded Ocean of Consciousness. And in a way, that sort of says the whole thing. But <laughs> <laughs> what's to talk about? What led you to write this book? It's my lifelong search for understanding ultimate reality and its implication on daily living and to make life really work for everyone, to make life better. Yeah. And so, you know, we have different understandings of the essence of things, where we come from, what's the meaning of life, do we have freedom, or is it all deterministic? And such questions, you know, about good and evil, big questions that we all ask ourselves in our life at one point, and then oftentimes we let go of them because we think, there are no answers, or maybe the answers are too philosophical or don't have much implication on our daily living. But I thought it would be great to explore that. And that's why I went into psychiatry, into medicine, neurology, brain science, cognitive science. Uh, yeah. And then um, went with uh, also looking from mental techniques, and particularly the development of the full potential through the mind. Yeah. And so came to a conclusion which the book kind of puts together. Yeah. And I must say your book is a real tour de force. You take on in the book what you call the hard question. So let me ask you, what is the hard question when it comes to consciousness? It really is what is consciousness. And the way they look at it is the hard problem or the hard question of consciousness, is how is it possible that a physical body leads to such mental, personal experiences? You know, if you build a machine, you don't expect maybe the machine to be having personal subjective feelings, 
to have when it sees something to have an aha experience that is personal to it and so if we consider our human body and the human nervous system as a physical machine then how is it that we have such feelings of love even joy even pain for example it's so personal it's so subjective uh, you look at red and you see it's red you can tell it's red this is one level the other level is what does red mean to you and how you experience it as redness yeah and so you know david chalmers who is a philosopher of consciousness from australia has coined that kind of word because he said the human brain one day we will be able to explain all its mechanics as we progress in neuroscience and this is an easy problem even though the easy problem is extremely and hugely difficult and yeah, complicated yeah you know this kind of That's, gets us off into the the potential area which i've saved for the end of our discussion artificial intelligence which is the hot topic and is kind of straining in that direction so that, <laughs> we'll, but we'll, I, right. we'll we'll discuss that in a bit uh, you come to the question of consciousness from every conceivable direction personal philosophical metaphysical mathematical hormonal dietary historical, <laughs> biochemical, neuropsychological, and more. And yet your book is written in an easy-to-read style using simple language. Anybody who can read <laughs> can read it and, and understand it, I think. And so I think that is a real, a real coup there. And I want to let people know that as, as technical as the book is in some ways, um, it does cover your own personal story in the early chapters. And I thought, okay, I don't want to take up time here. People can read that on their own. But I know I always look for that right away. Where did this guy come from? You know, how does this happen? So I just want to let everybody know that if they'll go ahead and read the book, they'll be gratified <laughs> to find all that out. Wonderful. Thank you. So you write that consciousness is not a thing yet it is everything. So I'll let you right. rhapsodize on that. <laughs> <laughs> right, this comes back to the hard problem, the hard question. If we think consciousness is a product of the nervous system, then we have a real problem, which scientists have not even come close to uh, be able to have even a hint about how this could happen. There are theories about quantum mechanics, there are theories about, uh, you know, unified field theories and different advanced theories in physics that might be there is a layer or a level of nature that is consciousness. But to have the physical body produce consciousness is something which we still have no clue about how it could happen. So there have been philosophically two uh, or three, if you like, and many subdivisions of understanding consciousness and material physical life. From the times of Descartes, uh, who thought that the material, the physical is always changing. It's something palpable you can touch, you can experience. So there is a material, we cannot deny that. Then he said, if I think very deeply about my existence, and I think that all this material physical is always changing, always changing. And it is also subject to how I experience it. Because in my dream, for example, I experience a reality and I feel it is real, absolutely real. I can have even heart palpitations and all of that if I'm yeah. in a fearful situation during dream. But then I wake up and I see another reality. And if I'm drowsy, I see something in a certain way. If I'm awake and clear, I see in some other ways. And so this physical material isn't necessarily fully reliable. How do I know I exist? And he says, as we all know, this uh, famous statement, I think, therefore I am. And therefore the reference to thinking, to consciousness, I am conscious. And therefore, I do exist. So there is an existence which is reliable, and that is based on consciousness. 
So then he said, okay, then therefore there are these two aspects. There is consciousness and there is matter. And these are two different aspects and reality is made out of these two different things. Now, there are the materialists or the physicalists, if we call them, who believe that matter is everything, that energy yeah. starts from somewhere, we don't know where, and it builds up and gets complex and builds up our body, builds up our complex nervous system. And then our nervous system is so complex that then it can have what we call consciousness. And many have thought that it's a human consciousness only because maybe animals don't have consciousness or plants don't have consciousness. And of course, this has been discarded as we have more experience into relation. And we can talk about this, that actually animals, even plants have some degree of consciousness. So this led to some people saying, well, everything maybe has consciousness. Therefore, there is something and that thing, whatever it is, has consciousness, as if, again, we go back to what they call the dualist perspective, two values, consciousness and matter, or monist, monist, which means only one value, one aspect, but materialist monist, which means only matter exists and matter produces consciousness. So the problem is, on the dualist perspective, how one talks to the other, how that which is yeah. abstract, which is subjective, talks to that which is physical, how do they interact? And there is no answer to that. On the materialist perspective, well, how does matter create consciousness? And there is no true answer to that. My proposal, based on experience and research, leads to another big question, of course, but it is consciousness is primary. So actually, we start with consciousness. And now our problem is, which I would call the hard problem of physicalness. <laughs> we don't have anymore the hard problem of consciousness. We are saying consciousness is all there is. Consciousness is the beginning. And now what is the problem? The problem is how from consciousness, physical reality appears and exists as we know it, as we see it. And so this is the, the main core of uh, what I discuss in the book and of what I propose in terms of mechanism by which we can explain that it's not really a hard problem of physicalness, that we can explain how consciousness actually appears as matter. You can't explain it. You say we can't explain that. Yeah, absolutely, we can. That's what I do in the book. That's yeah, what I yeah. do in the book. Okay, well, I'm going to have you take us through that. I, I've done some interesting interviews uh, on uh, non-dualism recently, and for a while I I sort of chafed when people would say, I'm a non-dualist, and that would kind of irritate me because just to assert that suggests two things, right? There's right. me, the non-dualist, and all those other people who are evil dualists, you know, and, <laughs> and so I was kind of chafed at that. But then in a recent interview um, with a woman who, who uh, wrote a book about discovering that animals suffer from PTSD, and she's really documented it very thoroughly. And that's kind of, I realized, well, I'm just being fussy and trivial, you know, to, to, to I think non-dualism makes a lot more sense to me. And so I do believe that consciousness goes all the way down. Whether it goes down to rocks, I don't know. But I'd say, you know, definitely, well, we have evidence, really, I think, that even at the microscopic level, you know, that little microscopic beings will, they, they show a uh, tendency towards self-protection, <laughs> they'll get yeah. out of the way. <laughs> yeah. They don't want to be messed with. <laughs> Absolutely. The question really is, and I think the problem is, in terms of figuring out or imagining or feeling comfortable with the idea that consciousness spreads throughout existence, throughout manifestation, is our definition of what it means to be conscious. What is consciousness? 
if we try to say that consciousness is only the way humans are conscious, so the way we are aware as humans, then it is hard to see consciousness in a plant or how to see consciousness in a cat. You know, cat maybe and monkey is okay, but maybe we can see some similarities. But if you take it to lower levels, such as plants and even inanimate objects, then it's impossible to accept the idea that they are conscious beings in the same way as we are. And here is the fundamental difference and fundamental aspect of what I propose in that sense is that consciousness has many, many, many layers, a range of what it means to be conscious. Mm -hmm. Even for humans, sometimes we are asleep, we are in a certain state of consciousness. When we are dreaming, we are in a different state of consciousness. When we are awake, we can be drowsy, we can be alert, we can be in a vegetative state, we can be in a coma state, we can be in an altered state. If you take you know, drugs and all that, you can have different colors and qualities of consciousness. Yeah. Even, you know, sometimes we know we are what we are. Sometimes we have more enlightened vision, broader consciousness. And so even for humans, consciousness varies and is different. Now, I'd like to extend the concept of what is consciousness to any sensing, any detecting, any reacting to any feeling, anything that interacts with anything else is consciousness, but different, different, which means there is minimal consciousness, almost no consciousness at all, but at least some minimal. And then there is a gradation of consciousness going yeah. to plants, animals, humans, and yeah, humans. That, that definitely and, makes sense to me. I think we have tended to think that the ability to be self-reflective, that's our human experience, and we don't know to what extent squirrels are self-reflective or not. Right, um, right. Uh, and, and you mentioned dreaming, and I, I have to tell you, I dreamt that we, we were having this interview, and actually, I, when I woke up, I... I had the impression that, oh, we, we spoke once before. We had a different interview. And I was almost to the point of, uh, of looking at that up to see if, in fact, we had, because I wasn't sure. And then this other part of me clicked in, because this has happened to me before, where I'll have a dream and I think something is real after I wake up. And then I realize, wait a second, that, that didn't happen. And I, yeah. I, I came to that realization, you know, before actually going to check through my archives to see if we had spoken before. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, so I, I'm with you. And also, I want to uh, pick up on the point now transcendental meditation uh, is not considered a religion. You can have be of a, a variety of religions and still gained from doing transcendental meditation. Can you say a little bit about that to reassure people on that point? Yeah, yeah. See, the same way as we have physical fitness, for example, techniques, we take a shower to clean our body, we do exercises, we do yoga, we do stretching, we eat, diet, and whether we have believe in it or not, it works. And whether... Uh, we are of one religion or the other, whatever is part of what we call the laws of nature, natural law, and that is healthy and brings fulfillment to the body, we accept it, you know, as healthy. And so there is technology of the mind also, not just technologies of the body. So there is techniques to help the mind settle down, to help the mind become more peaceful, more alert, more creative, expand consciousness, expand our awareness, clean up the system from the stresses and strains and the fears and the insecurity, you know, like sleep. Sleep is a technique. And so, you know, if somebody said sleep is a great thing and they are a religious person, <laughs> then we don't say that sleeping is religious or sleeping is a belief system. 
Yeah. Uh, it's natural and it works. And so transcendental meditation is an ancient technique. It comes actually from the system of yoga. It's the highest level of yoga. It's yoga of the mind, yoga of consciousness, which brings the awareness to a settled state. And this releases the tensions and the stresses because when the mind settles down as one transcends, to transcend means to go beyond. And so we really go beyond all the surface values of activity. If the mind was like an ocean, activity of the mind is like waves on the surface. And thoughts are like a bubble coming from the bottom of the ocean and rising up yeah. to the top of the ocean. And as we dive within, this is what transcending means. We transcend the surface values of the ocean's waves, go to the ocean's depths and more and more quietness, more and more quietness to the source of thought. And there we experience our true self as what we call pure consciousness, which means conscious of just consciousness, not conscious of anything else. That's why we call it to transcend. So we go beyond thought and to the source of thought, to the feeling level of being, to where we are, our own being. And that is a practical technique that requires no change in belief, even no change in habits. And all religions, all people, uh, even uh, top religious people, uh, responsible people in, in their religion, from all walks of life, all religions, they practice it and even use it and teach it for their people rehabilitation, uh, helping others, uh, creating more, more health and more creativity. And so it's a technique. That's why we call it a technique. Yeah, yeah. And you, in, in the personal part of your book, you share that you had an experience pretty readily when you tried the technique of transcendental meditation, I think maybe the first time that you tried it, you actually had that experience of, of pure consciousness. Am I saying that right? That's correct. Yes, that's correct. It was really diving into a world of discovering uh, something which I would call absolute because it's non-changing, it's pure, it's consciousness. And it's so fulfilling, so holistic, and in a spontaneous way, without trying, because this technique doesn't you know, require any trying. In fact, uh, as we teach it, we say trying is prohibited, and uh, one has to be totally innocent and follow the steps, and it happens by itself. So how did you avoid having, uh, saying, Oh my God! I'm having a, an experience of a, of a enlightenment now, yeah. which would which would pull you out immediately. Yes, it does. It, but once you're in it, you're in it. It's just like consciousness experiencing itself, and it floats. And then suddenly, of course, at the beginning, when you are so deep, and the body rests so deeply, stresses get released, tension can get released. And at the beginning, it's a new experience. So you do get like that and you wonder what's going uh, on. Yeah, and it pulls yeah. you out a little bit, of course. And then that's how the process works. It's diving and cleaning up the system and diving again. So it has these two values. It brings you to that level of awakening, deep level of transcending. At the same time, it releases the tensions and the stresses so that when you come out, you come out really fresh, as if you've slept a very solid good night's sleep and even much, much better. At the same time, you're very alert. So it's not like a lethargic state. Yeah. It's a state of restful alertness, which means you're very restful, yet you're extremely alert. And when I said we don't try or trying is prohibited, it means during meditation, just to explain to our listeners, that during life you try, you work, you do your things, of course. But during transcending, when you close the eyes and sit, the technique requires that we don't make effort. And it's very easy to learn. It used to bother me to hear stories of uh, sages in India who are said to be in a constant state of enlightenment. And I recently uh, shared that feeling with somebody in an interview 
And uh, she brought it home to me in, in a way that made sense to me, saying that a person can have developed to the point where they can choose to enter into that state whenever they want to. Is that true for you, that, that you can go there like pretty quickly whenever you want to? You can, you can do that, but truly enlightenment in that sense means a dual state. Some people imagine that enlightenment means spaced out and not really in touch with reality and not in touch with daily concerns and all of that. Enlightenment means simply, in this case, never to lose the self in favor of the object of experience. Let, let me explain maybe a little more. See, okay. when you look at the flower, the consciousness becomes the flower. When you look at, a, at an object, when you look at a scene, when you remember something, when you're thinking about something, your whole consciousness becomes that thing, whatever it is. This is how we experience things on the usual, usual level of experience. In this case, in this ancient tradition, this is called boundary. Then you are bound, you are attached by the object of perception. So the object of perception takes over your experience of the self. You lose the self for the object of perception. In transcendental meditation, when we transcend, we experience the self as pure consciousness. When we come out of it, our projection of our attention goes on the object of perception. However, the repeated experience of transcendence becomes more and more natural and familiar. And when you come out of it, it still stays with you every time a little more, a little more, a little more. So that even when you are projecting your attention on the object of perception, you do not lose the peace, the harmony, the sense of quiet, the self, the feeling established in oneself. And therefore, the self is not anymore a football of situations and circumstances that is kicked around by the winds of situations. There is a continuity of being, a continuity of stability, a continuity of inner peace, at the same time, there is great focus on activity. There is even more dynamic activity, more ability to be in touch with things from a platform of wholeness, from a platform of well-being. And this is what we call liberation. You are liberated from the boundaries of the objects of perception. And that is what enlightenment is. Otherwise, enlightenment has had a little bit of bad press in the sense that, <laughs> you know, some enlightened guy, particularly if you come here to Europe and, and particularly in France, for example, an enlightened, the term, an enlightened guy, illuminé, is kind of very pejorative. It's like some guy living in the sky, spaced oh. out and not in touch with the reality. You know, this is unfortunate. The, the reality is that you are more in touch with reality. Why? Because you are established on a platform of stability and you can see reality from that platform rather than being pushed around and pulled around and, and thrown around by the situations and the outside cir circumstances. Yeah. I was trying to think of a... Of a uh, your, your book is, is filled with just wonderful metaphors that help bring the ideas to life and I was right now I was trying to think of a, of a metaphor but it's it's not adequate but I was thinking of of people who are in grief and that they quote suffer from a kind of dual consciousness but not the one that gives you the sharpened for the healthy part but but they have that dual consciousness as it's reported of not being, never really completely getting over the loss of the loved one, that it's always there in the background for them. So that suggests the possibility, at least, of a kind of dual consciousness. Yes, beautiful. Yes, beautiful. Beautiful. It's an example. In that example, it's the grief that takes the platform. 
right. rather than this of being. And yeah. so, but as you say beautifully, it does demonstrate that there is a possibility of this dual, dual existence in a sense. Yeah. But in a on a very stable, solid level, it's not like a psychotic, of course, kind of splitting of personality or splitting of of experience. But right, and uh, now I think that you see transcendental meditation as uh, you know, there's there's so much going on right now uh, that's anxiety arousing potentially. Uh, what with wars, global warming, pandemic, uh, environmental issues, and so on. So I gather that you see transcendental meditation as a way that a person can exist with that and and find that place in themselves where they are not rendered helpless, where they don't collapse, where we don't collapse into helplessness and fatalism. However, how do you, I know that part of your mission seems to be to move that to an inter, to a national and international level. And I don't know if you imagine all the government leaders and everybody engaging yes. in, in this technique of transcendental meditation uh, and quite, you know, how it would make that lead. But take us through that because I believe you've done research that seems to suggest that that's possible. It seems like an impossible dream, but tell us otherwise. Yes, I mean, it is. it seems like an impossible dream if one adopts the materialist perspective alone. Okay. Then one has to try to find logic and understanding from the physical material level. And then you can say, how is it possible that one person transcending or using or improving their consciousness can influence other people's awareness. And there are different layers to that. Of course, to go back to this environmental and other problems, you know, we know what to do. We know what needs to be done. We have analyzed it. Scientists have analyzed it, but people don't do it. They don't do it because of their limited consciousness, their fears. So they live in a world where there is anxiety, there is fear, and therefore they react on that basis with what we call simply a fight or flight response. So either you fight or you run away. And so if you run away, you can get depressed, you can get anxious, you can get like that. If you fight, you end up fighting, you create also problems and fighting. And the thing is that when we are in this stress situation, we don't use our full potential. And this is scientific. We know that the blood flow even to the upper parts of the brain gets shunted to the lower parts in order to prepare for fighting or for running away, which is something we inherited from, you know, uh, the evolution uh, in the jungle and to self-protection and all of that, which right. is justified and very important. But it means we are not using the creative side. We are not using the logical side. We are kind of on an anger, on a on a fight kind of level, and therefore all our motivation, all our thinking is in this self-protection mechanisms that don't take into consideration the full possibilities that are offered in the environment or in our relations in our world. So this is one level. The other level is on the level of consciousness itself, because the paradigm I'm presenting, the paradigm we're discussing, is that consciousness is primary. And consciousness appears as matter because it has all these layers and ways of looking at itself. This is also what is detailed in the book. And therefore, the field that is underlying all that there is, is a field of consciousness. If you like to see what it means in physics, in physics they call it the unified field of all the laws of nature, which means if you go from the solid gross level of molecules to atoms and then elementary particles, you reach what they call fields, you know, electromagnetic field and different fields. And scientists, physicists, now this is not philosophy or 
or ideas. It's physicists have found that these fields are more and more unified as you go to the smaller and smaller scales and deeper into nature. Ultimately, postulating one field, one unified mm. field of energy or reality, that when it fluctuates and vibrates, you know, like the ocean fluctuating and vibrating, it creates waves and these waves appear as isolated particles. The particles combine, create atoms. The atoms combine, create molecules and molecules then combine, creating cells and bodies and, and objects and all of that. Now, if you can act from that level of the unified field, you can make a difference on all these other layers because consciousness is primary. And consciousness is what manifests as the surface values. When we transcend, we are enlivening this unified field of natural law, the laws of nature, this field of consciousness. And therefore, because this field is non-local, which means it is not limited in space right. and time, yeah. its effects spread out. And that's what we have seen when you talk about research, we have seen that when 1% of the people in a society practice transcendental meditation and therefore enliven that field, then we see changes in the whole society. We see reduction in accidents of the road, reduction in crime, reduction in even hospital admissions, and all of these values are improved and reduced the ones that are negative or limiting, they are reduced. And that is because we are enlivening uh, waves of fields of peace and relaxation and happiness that is sensed in the whole society. So what we've done is, uh, this is, has been called actually the Maharishi effect. Maharishi is the founder of the technologies that we are using. Right. And he predicted that when 1% of the population practice this technique, there will be changes in society. And then more advanced techniques require only the square root of 1%. And we've repeated this many, many times. And it shows systematically a perfect relationship between the number of people who practice this technology of consciousness and the occurrence of crime, of conflict, of uh, accidents in society, and all kinds of other positive factors happening. So, where, where is, in the world does does uh, such a community exist where you have one percent who are practicing we, this? We really don't have because it, it requires maintenance, it requires continuity of practice. And people, they practice, they feel good, then sometimes they stop or they travel and all of yeah. that. Yeah. And so we don't have it on a permanent basis, but we have done it several times. There are more than 50 studies about this phenomenon that have uh, gathered this. And actually we plan to, to do this experiment again, and we invite scientists to actually come and observe the results. By the end of this year, we want to gather 10,000 people, and they will practice these advanced techniques together. We call them Siddhi. Siddhi is a term from ancient Sanskrit, which means perfection, perfection in thinking, perfection in being. Okay. And they will practice this technique, and we expect tremendous changes in the world uh, during the practice and tremendous benefits and positive things happening. And so this is, will be one more experiment. Hopefully it will inspire leaders and wealthy people to support a large group like this on a permanent basis so that there is maintenance of what we call collective consciousness of the nations. What if I'm taking you at your word now. What if somebody wants to volunteer to to go and be part of this experiment? Where would they go? How would they contact you? To, absolutely, we to we forward? we ask. Absolutely, we ask everyone to contact us. They can send an email, or you know, there is drtonynader.com, which is my website. Yeah. There will be a website specialized for that, 
So we will soon have that site and we can then give it to you. You can add it to the discussion we have. And even if they don't practice transcendental meditation, we have planned special program for everyone. They can start right away because it takes time to do the advanced techniques. Yeah. They can start, they learn TM, they learn some advanced techniques. And then by, by six months, when we go to this course in December, January, then they'll be able to participate and that would be great. Wow. See, it's not a, just uh, sitting yeah. and thinking or having good feelings or good thoughts and good discussion. That's why we insist that it has to be transcendence. There have been many gatherings of people coming with very good will and practicing, you know, different different exercises, different yoga stretching, which are all very good for health and for well-being, no question. But to produce the effect on the level of consciousness on society, you need to transcend and then know how to act from that transcendental level. And so we would like, you know, to invite everyone, but those who want to participate in the project, they have to learn the advanced technique. So as soon as they can join, the better it is. Yeah. You know, right now there are, are experiments going on uh, in the culture with people going off and for short periods of time, for maybe a week or a weekend or whatever, with psychedelic substances like ayahuasca. And, right. and uh, so where might that fit in or, or does it fit in? Uh, certainly, it, it is an approach to altering consciousness. Yes, and, and these techniques and these trials, you know, the advantage of them, if there is an advantage, is that one can experience that reality is different in different states of consciousness. Right. Therefore, you can go into, a, you know, if the brain works in a different way, if you use some substances and all that, your appreciation of reality changes and you start seeing things and imagining things. So this is really like being on the surface of the ocean and stirring the ocean in a certain way and stirring it in such a, you know, a violent way sometimes that you see all kinds of waves and all kinds of things and it happens dramatically and all that and it gives you a show, you know, like fireworks on the surface and it just gives that experience. But this is not diving. Diving in is going to actually no surface experience, but deep experience of the self. Going back to a peaceful, quiet self, which has no phenomenon in it, not a thought, not a memory, not a feeling on the surface level at all, but huh. just a being, being on the level of existence, pure, calm, infinitely peaceful state of existence, of silence, complete unbounded silence. That's why the book is called One Unbounded Ocean of Consciousness. Right. It's an unbounded ocean of consciousness. Yes, so yes. It's different. One is creating waves on the surface that can be amusing for a short time. It has its own maybe value of experience, but it shakes the system also. So one has to be careful has to be not, if anything, proper study and follow-up. And I personally wouldn't advise to, to go too much into that. And the other one is just natural, simple, innocent, going back to the self, know thyself and yeah. be in yourself yeah. and discover that infinite silence within. Are there some people who, uh, who maybe are not healthy enough uh, mentally, to undergo the process? Are there, you know, I know like in psychiatric studies and, and psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy studies, they screen people out based on, you know, are there is there any trace of psychosis there, et cetera? Right. Does that make sense for the kind of yes, uh, thing yes, you're talking we have about? To be, yeah, and even in transcending, we have to be uh, alert to certain conditions and they would require then a gradual approach, a different approach, not directly transcending. Not that transcending has any side effects, 
but they will not really be able to experience the full value if they are not stable on the surface. And therefore, we'll have to take them to some level of stability with maybe diet, with medical medication if necessary. And then when they are uh, well settled, then they can have this deeper transcending. Okay. So who's your target audience for this book? Who should get the book? <laughs> I'd love it if everyone gets it, of course. Everybody, yeah. <laughs> we pulled it out of print and out of the digital because we're preparing to make a real launch, a nice launch. So it's for pre-sale coming up in March in both digital and in paper in English. It is uh, printed, of course, in Spanish, in Italian, and uh, many, many languages in Hindi also, and, and, and like that, many other languages coming up. It is an audio, audio in English. I have read it myself. So for those who like to do audio, audio listening, it is there on Audible, for example. And its audience is really everyone who is interested in the big questions of life and searching for answers. And it could be from high school to any kind of level of education or background. If one is not familiar with certain aspects of like physics and all that, one has to be patient and, you know, jump to the other topics. Because in order to make it as complete as possible, I discussed some philosophical aspects and I discussed some biology and physiology yeah. and I discussed some physics also. So some people find the physics a little bit daunting, but the chapter on physics, one can just listen to it and whatever one gets. It's not essential for the heart of the topic. Yeah. You know, when you were talking about uh, physics uh, a few minutes ago and about the field, the unified field theory, and it brought something home to me that I had been struggling with, which is the, and, and I know there is a, there's a term for it, but two particles that are physically separated, uh, far apart, and if one is spinning, uh, they, they will mirror each other even though they're not physically together. And so the the idea that they share that they share a common field, I think, explains that. And yeah, entanglement. That's entanglement exactly. Entanglement. Yes. Yeah, it's a, it's a big baffling thing actually. It baffled uh, Einstein because he couldn't believe it that it could be possible. Right. Because how could it be that a particle on let's say on the moon and a particle on planet Earth they are so exactly spontaneously and immediately interconnected. So when one flips in one side, the other flips to the other side to maintain the balance and the wholeness. And he said that it's not possible. If there is information going from one to the other, it has to travel faster than the speed of light, which is technically impossible. And that's what tells us that the universe is different than what our perception on the surface shows. And that is part of the logic that I use also, is that what we see is only one aspect of the reality. Yeah, You know, yeah. we don't see all the spectrum of light, for example. We see only from red to violet. We don't see infrared. We don't see ultraviolet. We don't hear all the sounds. We don't hear this and that. And so we have a system that sees only part of reality and a you know, skewed part, which is based on how our perception is. Right. Our senses limit us. Our senses uh, are, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's been pointed out that, that our, our senses are not windows to the world, but rather filters. <laughs> exactly. Beautiful, beautiful. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And... Yeah, I've been influenced very much by Jung's idea of synchronicity, and maybe that fits in here somewhere because there are ways in which my life feels like it's been influenced greatly by by long series of synchronicities that just would defy any kind of um, materialistic explanation. 
where are you with that woo woo? <laughs> absolutely, you know, I, I'm absolutely with you. This is, you, you know, we are part of one ocean of being. Yeah, uh, we influence with every action, with every thought, we influence that ocean. Sometimes very little, tiny bit, and sometimes a little more. And when we are together and synchronous like this, that's why we want to create this 10,000 group. Then our synchronicity creates a very powerful effect that spreads through the ocean of being and influences every aspect of existence. You know, in the laser, for example, the laser light, frequency of laser light is the same as any light. It's not like something. Yet, the only difference is that laser light is coherent. So when one wave goes up, the other goes up, the other go down, go down. So the actual light waves are incoherent with one another. And that's how you get laser light that can penetrate and even create tunnels in the mountain. These powerful laser lights, they can do that. Now, what they have found is when a small percentage of wavelengths of waves of light get in coherence in a coherent fashion, then all the others, they align, they follow. Uh -huh. And so a small percentage of a coherence leads to a large coherence. That also can explain how our phenomenon works when a few people are in a state of harmony, a state of coherence together, they, in, they are in synchronicity and they entrain, they, they uh, bring in all the others also so that there is a powerful harmony and coherence. And that is really what creates quite a bit of strength and, and, and inner coherence of society, which can then reject and be more powerful than factors that come and attack it. Well, this might be a good place to wrap it up. Uh, I'm feeling maximum coherence with you right now. <laughs> and so this might be a good place uh, to say uh, thank you. And uh, uh, it's been, a, again, a, an honor and a pleasure to to meet you, Dr. Dr. Tony Nader. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. My great pleasure, David. It's wonderful to be with you. And, you know, you mentioned artificial intelligence briefly, if you want me to say something, I would say that it is a powerful technology which can be very useful, but we have to raise human consciousness so that it can use it to the right aims and in the right direction. Otherwise, if we start thinking that it's a tool for fighting and destroying the other, then it becomes like the armament race and people will be racing to use artificial intelligence yeah. for purposes that will end up being harmful. So what we need is raise individual and collective consciousness so our dear world is thinking together, behaving together in harmony for life to be something wonderful for everyone. That sounds good to me. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks to you. Really a delight to be with you. Thank you for tuning into Dr. Tony Nader, the podcast. And if you're interested in learning more from Dr. Nader, please follow him on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube.